So, um, before going to Jerusalem, Paul stops and he has some final words with the church of Ephesus. So he gathers all the elders together on the beach. That's what we're going to be seeing here in our text this morning. And um, little did I know that this was going to be one of the most important theological passages in the entire Bible to me when I first started studying this my initial times. I started to look at this passage and look at others like it. I approached it with this belief that if Paul knew that these were going to be his last words and the church of Ephesus were his closest friends and they were the people that he spent the most time with, then you would think that the last words that he was going to speak with them were going to be really important. And not all of us have the opportunity to know when our last words were going to be. But you're going to see as you read on in this text, Paul seemed very aware that he was never going to see these folks again and that he was addressing them for the last time. And I started to notice something pretty important. Paul seemed to have an understanding of plurality of leadership and did not seem to believe that he or anybody else for that matter, was a senior pastor over this church. In fact, there was no senior pastor other than Jesus. And we're going to be seeing that strongly in this passage this morning. So I started seeing things like in verse 20, where it says that he gathered the elders, plural, together. In verse 28, He's addressing all of them, and he calls them overseers, plural, of the flock sent to care for the church of God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul, uh, Peter says, I, Peter, exhort you as your fellow elder, meaning I'm an equal elder, I'm on equal standing, and I'm exhorting the plural elders among you, not elder, so he's not referring to a senior elder or a lead elder or a senior pastor. Peter was speaking mostly um, like he was just one of the gang, like he was one of the guys referring to a group of the other leaders. Later in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter tells them to shepherd the flock among you, and again, he doesn't give a hierarchy. He just says, I'm one of these pastors that's called the shepherd, this flock, and I'm calling you guys now to go and shepherd this flock that has been entrusted to you. And in 2 Peter 1 1, Peter reveals to him, he reveals himself as a servant of equal standing to the other pastors that he's writing to in that passage. So he doesn't say that he's in any way above them, that he's authoritative over them. He is a servant of equal standing. So then as I started to see this in Scripture, I started to study the message and the ministry of Jesus. If anyone should have ever been able to pull out the senior pastor card, it should have been Jesus, right? I mean, God incarnate came and put on flesh, and he walked the earth. But if you notice, Jesus never once pulls the, hey, obey this, because I'm the Jesus card. He never once does it. In fact, he actually does the opposite. When he's 
being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, hey, look, at any point, I have the authority where I could call down a legion of angels and smoke you guys, but I'm not gonna. That's not the way that I roll. That's not the way that this is going to play out. You also see that Jesus never appeals to his own authority. So if Jesus never refers to himself as the senior pastor, it made me wonder why that was the highest title that could be used in churches and why that was a title that was used in so many churches that I had visited and been to over the years. So my experience, as I started to discover this, I was really excited about what I was learning in the scriptures. And I was excited for a lot of reasons. You see, Jesus is referred to as prophet, priest, and king in scriptures what a relief knowing that no one pastor needs to hold the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. That, that there's no senior pastor where somebody's saying, hold all of the offices of Jesus Christ. As I was a young man entering the ministry and considering the burnout rate that I just continue to hear at an increasing rate of those in ministry, it was relieving to see that Jesus did not expect of those of whom he called to be elders to be the total package. That he knew that we would all be beset with weakness because they were supposed to be a part of a team that would come together to minister to the church of God. And I always felt like if people were going to put so much stock in the title senior pastor, that it should be something we should at least find once in the Bible, right? Um, but, I mean, it's nowhere in there cover to cover. So as I began to share this newfound excitement, what really shocked me is this was not met with the enthusiasm that I thought that it would be met with. I guess looking back on it, when you meet with folks who consider themselves as holding to a title that you're telling them doesn't exist you could probably see why they wouldn't be so excited about it. When you're meeting with people to tell them, hey, you've given yourself a title that's not in the Bible and that Jesus would never give you, you could see how people wouldn't be so excited about it. And then when you get to the point where you say, you know what, I am absolutely exegetically convinced that you hold to a title that doesn't even exist then you could see how people would be even less excited about it and maybe even get defensive about it. So to make matters worse, I started to ask for scriptural evidence of the senior pastor model, and what I was told about was, hey, look back in Exodus. You ever see the story with Jethro and Moses? And Moses was told, you can't lead all of these people by Jethro, so you need to have people that'll be leaders over the hundreds and leaders over the tens and leaders over the ones and the fives and the so on and so forth. And I'm like, that's great, but what does that have to do with church ecclesiology? That's an exodus. I'm asking you to show me if you're going to hang your hat on this title, if you're going to hang your paycheck on this title, can't you point to one New Testament passage 
that would be able to back up this title without having to point to some very loose usage in Exodus to be able to back it up. And I couldn't help but wonder if this was something that was so important, why do we have no New Testament passages to be able to back it up? One more quick story before I get into this, but to kind of frame the importance of why I think a message on church leadership is important, even though when you came here this morning, you probably weren't like, man, I really hope that he's giving a message on church ecclesiology because that just really gets my blood boiling. Um, I like this stuff. I hope you end up liking this stuff by the end. But when I really started to dig into this, I decided I need to go back to seminary and I, I need to get more education. So I got accepted to a seminary out in Colorado, and I started to look up churches, and as I started to look up churches, I just typed in some specific things that I was looking for. So I looked for Reformed Theology and Plurality, and the network that I'm going out to serve tomorrow out in Colorado was the first thing that came up. So I started to look at their website, and I saw that their theology was solid Reformed, and I, I liked that. And then there was this little link that said passions. I was like, I want to know what their passions are. So I clicked on their passions. And you know what their passions were? Church planting. Anything weird about church planting being your passions? That's singular, right? (laughs) That's a singular term. Their passions, passions denotes plural, that there'd be more than one. There was one thing underneath passions, and it was church planting. So I saw these guys are reformed. They really put a premium on church planting. And then when I looked at how we do it, they gave this big, long explanation about how God designed us to need one another's complementary gifts and designs and how we were called to plant in plurality and it was the design that Jesus always used when he called the disciples to himself when he sent the disciples on mission and then when you see the epistles being written later on in the church so I flew out and I found a home I found the healthiest church that I'd ever seen I got to go to this church that was a thousand people that was meeting across multiple campuses that had four services that had sent out multiple churches and were planting churches and were sending out missionaries. And you know what I didn't find out there? The lead guy. I didn't find the senior pastor. I didn't find one guy in charge. There was a collective of godly men who were leading this church as elders that we're seeing the multiplication across the church go on worldwide and my heart was absolutely in love they had different people functioning not by title but by areas of their giftedness and it had been a joy to go out and serve them ever since and now by God's grace I get to be on the board of that network and I'm going to be going out and speaking there tomorrow and I absolutely love these guys so as we dig into this text you can't help but wonder these words are written to mostly pastors so you figure that it should be important to pastors at least but not only pastors this should also pertain to each of you guys out there who are not pastors so I want to give you a couple of critical reasons over the years 
why this is important and not just to pastors. I've met a third mission field over the years that should not exist, but the reality is, is it does exist. You meet your churched folks. You meet your unchurched folks. But the one that gets me just so sad is you meet your post-churched folks. The people that tell you, I used to be very involved in Christianity. I used to be very involved in the church, but here is the story of my church woe. Here's the story of my church pain. I'm no longer involved in the church. I've given up on the church. It's easier to do my Christianity apart from the church than to do it as a member of the church. I'm telling you, that is a group of people that is growing by the day, folks. And the biggest thing that I've learned most of the church hurt that, exert, that exists out there is a result of getting this area of ecclesiology, of church leadership, wrong. I mean, story after story about congregations that voted to implode upon themselves time after time, or senior pastors that just had power that run amok time after time and you continue to hear these stories over and over and you say wow this is starting to develop a pattern that the longer you start to see unhealthy leadership unchecked run amok the more people you start to see that begin to get hurt so most church hurt stems from somebody that's getting too big for their britches and pride begins to sink in they have no natural checks and balances for that pride Pride begins to run amok, and then people begin to get hurt in that process. And Paul seemed to prioritize before he left the earth, not seeing that happen in the church that he planted in Ephesus. Look with me, starting in verse 17. It says, And now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me throughout the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God of our faith and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give you guys eight principles that you see on good, humble, biblical leadership from this text. The first is that he did not cease from sharing hard truth with his congregation. He actually says, I never shrunk back from sharing with you anything that would have been considered profitable to you. Notice that he does not say that he did not shrink back from sharing anything that would be popular with them. He says, I didn't shrink back from sharing anything that was profitable. And he made sure to train the other elders to be able to share difficult things with them as well. And because of that, they should be equipped to be able to share difficult things in the lives of other people because, look, you are confronted with difficult truths on a daily basis. 
you should be able to go to a place where people are skilled in the word to be able to train you in the word to be able to confront difficult things with the word. And that's what he's saying. I didn't shrink back from that. We hit the hard truths that we were confronting dead on. And I showed you how to be able to confront these things with the scriptures. And let me point out when it says that he didn't shrink back in sharing difficult things, he means both doctrine and lifestyle. It has to be both. I sit with some folks who have been called to be pastors in their network or denomination, and I wonder if they've ever had this in their lives. Did anyone ever sit with them and tell them the things that were difficult to hear? I'm not asking if anyone ever sat with you and taught you how to diagram sentences in the Greek, or if anybody ever sat and taught you how to be able to articulate the finer points of Calvinism. I mean, has anybody ever sat with you and said, you're really arrogant, and you come across as really arrogant to your congregation, and if you don't repent of it, God's going to cut you down. Because God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. And when I see you up in the pulpit, I hear a whole lot of pride come out of your mouth. Has anybody ever sat and taught our young men something like that? I remember when I was in Bible school, when I was in Moody, there was a bunch of dying churches that were all around Moody, so we would get asked to go and do pulpit supply at these churches, and what we thought was just the coolest thing is we would just go and bring the hardest word, and then we'd come back to the dorm floor, and we'd brag about the hard word that we brought, and they'd say, what'd you preach? And be like, man, I just lit those people up, and like, people were giving each other high fives. We need somebody twice our age on that dorm floor to be like, wow, Satan's loving your conversation right now, and Jesus hates it. Somebody needed to tell us that instead of learning the hard way that prideful arrogance had set in that it took a long time to be able to repent of or has somebody ever sat with a young man and said look the way you lead your wife and children is entirely unacceptable so why would you be called to be an example to the men who lead wives and children in their congregation. Young pastors need to be able to hear those things. Or, hey, every time you share, you share a list of your accomplishments. And what it seems like is you don't know how to rely on Jesus' justification for your life. So you continue to come back to your own deeds to be able to justify you because you don't know what it really means to rest in Jesus. Is somebody sharing those difficult things with somebody. Those are the hard things that we need people to be telling the young men who are training for ministry. Most of them graduate with a head full of the theology stuff. Guys, I, I mean, I, I graduated able to diagram any book of the Bible in Greek. That doesn't mean that I should have been pastoring a church or that I was called to pastor a church just because I had a little bit of understanding and theology under me. But it seems like there's very few people who graduate who are able to 
lead a congregation by being an example of Jesus to that congregation. I remember this one professor getting us all psyched for ministry, and then he said, so how many of you would go and preach a sermon and say, follow me the way that I follow Jesus? We all thought it was super humble not to raise your hands to that question, right? Nobody wants to raise their hands and say, I'm going to be the one that's going to go tell people, follow me. And he's like, well, guess what? Paul did. So until you're able to say that, maybe you should stay out of ministry for, for the love of the church. And I'm grateful that I had men like that in my life. I remember that same professor asking us about the churches that we were going to all go out and start in my pastoral theology class. And he was like, so how many of you, when you start this church, you're going to have a children's pastor? And I'm like, yes, I want a children's pastor. How many of you are going to have this dynamic youth group where you're going to have like a couple hundred kids coming out to your youth group? And I mean, by the end, he's just like, how many of you are you going to have this dynamic women's ministry and you're going to have somebody that's full-time overseeing that? And by the we're all like jumping out of our chair's like, yes, this is the church that I'm going to pastor. And he's like, no, it's not. You're going to be scrubbing toilets, and your church is going to have 40 people in it. And you're not going to have any of those staff positions, because that's the way it works. I was like, well, that kind of let the air out of my, where's my youth pastor at? <laughs> he's not there no more. Where's my intern? Where's my college pastor? Thank God for older bucks who have lived a little bit of wisdom, who love younger bucks enough to be able to speak truths into their life that they're not going to learn instinctively. And then he says, I did not cease to learn an honest living among you. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. And then um, skip down to verses 33 through 35. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all these things I have shown you that by working hard, in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He's saying, I didn't cease from the day that I arrived to earn an honest living in front of me. From the day that I arrived here, I did not cease to work hard amongst you people. Ministers should be known for our work ethic. I love how he says in verse 34, he says, you know these hands. I imagine what he's pointing out as he's saying that is calluses on those hands. And he's saying, you know these hands. You watched these hands work amongst you. I didn't just sit in some ivory tower. I work amongst you. You saw these hands working amongst you. Ministry should be a calling. It should be something you love, but the people that God has entrusted to you deserve a hard-working pastor. You should be able to say, you know these hands. I, I've never understood how we take men who work 45 hours a week or women that work 45 hours a week 
and then we say, hey, can you, can you come and minister at the church? We could really use you for about 15 hours a week. Then we need you to come to church on Sunday. Can you show up early? Because we could really use your help. And you start to add that all up. And that's 65 hours a week. But then the pastor thinks that he should be able to put in a 40-hour week. And I want to be able to say to this congregation, you know these hands. You've seen them work. You've seen that just as I've called you to a hard day's labor, I'm willing to give a hard day's labor right alongside of you. That's what he's sharing with these young men. And then he goes on to say, I did not cease to share the full counsel of God's word. Look with me at verse 27. He says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and to the care of the church which he has obtained by his blood. This means that he taught them everything that was profitable. He didn't skip over the things that were difficult to teach. Look, the word has some things that if we're really going to teach the fullness of God's truth are going to swim upstream against our culture and they're even going to swim upstream against church culture. The word has a lot of things to say about sanctity of life. I don't care that this world wants to consider the unborn not a child. The Bible does. We swim upstream against that battle, and it's worth it whether people want to hear it or not. The Bible has a lot to say about the sanctity of marriage, whether people want to hear it or not. The Bible defines gender as that which you were born with. The Bible defines gender as male or female, whether people want to hear it or not. Since when does Bruce Jenner get to tell me more about what should define gender than the Bible? It doesn't work like that. The Bible, if you're going to teach the full counsel of the Word of God, has difficult things to hear, whether it swims upstream against culture or not. The Bible calls homosexuality a sin, even if our culture says that it's not. But th those are the things that are out there, right? The Bible also has a lot to say about how you as a Christian spend the money that he's entrusted to you. It's easier to thump against sexuality, right? Just keep your hands out my wallet, right? Um, the Bible has a lot to say about that woman in the church that you want to gossip about because you just don't jive with her personality. The Bible has a lot to say about complaining about your lot in life. The Bible has a lot to say about how we deal with our issues of anger. And what Paul's saying is, I didn't shrink back from sharing any of this with you. I shared with you the full counsel. I gave you guys everything that you needed to succeed by sharing with you the full counsel of the word of God. Another point that we see is he did not cease to ground them doctrinally. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable, teaching to you in public from house to house, 
testifying both to Jews and Greeks. I taught you about repentance toward God and towards faith and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I grounded you in the gospel. I took the time to lay a gospel foundation. You guys heard this stuff. There's no reason to shrink away from it, which makes it all the more difficult. This is the same church, mind you, that in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, I know your good works. I know what you've done. I know that you've tried all the false teachers, and you know that they're false teachers. I know that you've looked at their doctrine, and you know that it was bad doctrine. I know that you've tried those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. But I have this against you. You left the love you had at first. He's saying right here in verse 21, I didn't shrink away from telling you about that love. I never shrank away about telling you about that firm foundation in Jesus Christ. Two more, and now three more, and then I'll wrap up. He says, I did not cease to train you against weirdos that would come into your congregation. Look with me, starting in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and to the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in amongst you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish each one of you with tears. He's saying, look, after I leave... Weirdos are going to come in. They're going to twist the stuff that I said. And some of you are going to be led astray by it. You know, I think that this right here is actually harder in our day and age than it was when Paul was speaking. Because during that day and age, you know what somebody had to do to go and teach falsely to a false congregation? And this is crazy. I'm going to show you. To do this. They had to actually walk to a place, open a door, walk into a place, and go and talk to people. This day and age, it doesn't take that. All it takes is one weirdo over social media, and I could blast out all the false teaching that I want. All it takes is one weirdo with a bizarre interpretation of the Bible, and boom, that's entered into thousands of people's homes with just the click of a button. And Paul's saying, I've warned you that these people are going to come in. One of the ways that you're going to recognize them is they're not going to be pointing people to Jesus. They're constantly going to be pointing people to themselves. And they're going to be saying, look at me, follow after me, come follow my example, and he's saying, I have equipped you. You don't have to fall into that. Another thing that we see is that Paul did not cease to move the elders toward plurality. I love that at the end of this passage, you see him gathered with those Ephesian elders, and he's hugging them, and the kissing part weirds me out a little bit, I'll be honest, but um, I'm glad that that's not a part of our culture anymore. But, you know, they're having this big old party. He's saying goodbye to them. He's bowing in prayer 
with them on the beach, and he is equipping these Ephesian elders to go and lead in plurality. Look, a mark that you could see if a church is doing this, right? If you see a church consolidating power into one position, that church is about to go off track. The biblical pattern is more and more, I want you to see me less and less. He must increase, but I must decrease. You even heard John the Baptist say that. You even heard Jesus say that when Peter tried to keep him from leaving. And he said, if, if I don't leave, I, I can't send the comforter who's going to be the one who's going to teach you all things concerning myself. You see this continual pattern in Scripture of people decreasing and Jesus in if I'm increasing, Jesus is decreasing. We always want to pe pe point people to the true senior pastor. Who's the senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship? Jesus. Who's the senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship? Je oh, man. I've never heard the word Jesus said with less passion than that. Who's the senior pastor of Redeemer Fellowship? Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the last two points here, and then a little bit of application, is Paul did not cease to call people to mission. If you look at the end of chapter 20, as he's calling these people away, he's telling them, be alert. He's commending them to go and take the word of God and to be able to build up and to be able to pour into the next generation. A church should never dead end on itself, and he never ceased to live it out sacrificially as the final point. If somebody is not willing to bleed for the cause that they're teaching, then you have to wonder how much it is that they really believe in the cause that they're teaching. So a couple of application points for you guys. Receiving and teaching the full counsel of the word of God is a two-way street. The pastor has to be willing to teach it. So it should be coming from up front. But you have to be willing to receive it. If somebody's teaching the full counsel of the word of God and you're like, all right, that's nice, but I'm going to compartmentalize this aspect of my life and not allow the word of God to touch into that. Well, then somebody could be teaching the word of God, but that's not the same as receiving the word of God. Also, plurality and a desire for plurality is a two-way street. I've found that when I teach on plurality, that people nod their heads. I mean, really, like if I taught the opposite, it would probably be weird, right? If I was like, look, plurality stinks. Next week, we're getting rid of all of the elders, and you will come down and you will bow to me as your supreme overlord, right? And you guys would be like, all right, that, that, that's, that's odd. That, there, there's something wrong. But as I continue to teach on plurality and I say, look, if Pastor Tim says something, it carries just as much weight. Just because I'm up here preaching a little bit more often doesn't mean that I'm more pastor-ish than him. If Pastor Daniel says something, it carries just as much weight. If Pastor Lee says something, it carries just as much weight. That's the way that plurality works. And I think that when we hear those things, we instinctively want to say, yes, my heart agrees with that. 
But what I want to challenge you with is if every time you have an issue, if there's only one of those pastors on that team that can help you, then you don't believe in plurality. Like if you came here from when Remedy came together, and you're on the Remedy side of things, and you're like, well, I've known Eric for five years, so Eric's really the only one that can help me. That's not plurality. If I can't point you to Tim and say, Tim is just as much your pastor as I am, that's not plurality. If you say, hey, I've done 25 years here at Trinity, and I've known Tim for 25 years, why am I going to come to you? That's not plurality. So you could say that you have a functional belief in plurality, but that is not plurality. Plurality is a two-way street. And the last point is living out the call to mission is a two-way street. Paul called his people to live in mission, but Paul also modeled mission to his people. We shouldn't be calling our people to something that we're not willing to live out ourselves. We should be able to say, you've seen these hands and how they worked amongst you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the plurality of pastors that we have here. God, I thank you that you've given us people of various ages, backgrounds, experiences, and that we get to be the beneficiaries as the congregation. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.